the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello and joining you on a dark, cold but already slightly festive feeling December the 1st from Berlin where the Christmas markets are in full swing and the glue vine is flowing. My name is Daniel Freeber. I'm the host of this week's episode of the Cycling Podcast. Today we're sort of going to pull into the proverbial autogrill at the roadside of our 2022 season review. Inspired or rather somewhat perturbed by some recent events, we're going to be considering the cycling media, reflecting on the cycling media, how it covered the season that was 2022, where it currently finds itself, and perhaps most importantly, where it's heading. To help me with that undertaking today, as usual, I'll be calling on two exceptional guests, each with their own unique insight into those subjects that I've just mentioned. First at the plate today, in fact, taking swings from his adopted home on the, uh, on the Côte d'Azur in southern France. It's a professional cyclist, so sickeningly easy on the mic, the camera, and probably the printed page. That He's a one-man media empire just doing Disney, Netflix, Comcast, Elon Musk et al. The favour of spending a few more years in the pro peloton before his inevitable multi-platform takeover. He's a former Tour de Suisse stage winner and ex-US American road race champion. He has signed for AG2R Citroën for another year. His status as a podcast favourite is sealed. We're delivering him into your ears again this week. He's yours, the Motown maestro, lucky Larry Warbass. And that was, of course, another Motown reference, courtesy of another Detroit native, Mr. Stevie Wonder. Hey, guys. Uh, good to be here again uh, for, yeah, for another week on the second podcast. Larry, you, you're sounding less and less enthused by these intros. No, as no, the week actually, goes I like by. them. They're cool. They're maybe one of my favorite parts of the podcast. I'm I always never, feel good about okay. myself after uh, that one minute. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> how, long, how long? The last time you appeared on the podcast, we were talking about your performance evaluation, which hasn't happened yet, has it? No, not you yet. You haven't had your meeting. No, um, no. So next week. But how, how are you feeling? How are you feeling about yourself generally, Larry? Um, performance evaluation uh, aside. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be fine. You know, I think it was just a hard season in terms of like all the crashes and stuff I had. So when I was racing, it was going really well. Um, and then when I wasn't racing, that was not ideal. So uh, I have to say, like, I mean, there's nothing really you can do to control like uh, crashes that are kind of out of, yeah, out of your hands. So, um, so yeah, I think in the end it was like, Results wise, it wasn't a great year, but I would say uh, I still was pretty content with how my season was every time I was racing. So, so yeah. Larry, the performance evaluation, performance review episode went down very well. Little do the listeners know that we had to cut out a few things because there was some, there was some fairly, there was some home truths um, that, that were pinging back and forth between you and Joe Dombrowski. But and we did, we did some judicious editing. Uh, okay. To our second guest today, marching imperiously to the crease from Brighton, I think he is in England. It's the man to whom consumers of cycling media owe the tedium of my presence in this industry for the last 20 years. He is as close as the Anglophone extremities of this field come to a doyen. His work graced the pages of Winning Magazine, Cycling Weekly, before he launched Pro Cycling in 1999, co-launched. More latterly, he's penned multiple acclaimed books, including Bad Blood and Ventoux. He's covered more tours de France for The Times and more recently The Guardian than I've had reader messages complaining about these intros. He's a man of experience, style, taste and above all insight. The name on the passport says Jeremy Whittle, but we call him Jez, Jezza or The Gent for that 
is what he is. Jeremy Jezza, how are you? I'm very good, Daniel. Thank you for such a... I was quite nervous then about that, actually, before you... Before you, <laughs> I was, before you I was embarked, quite nervous about it as before well. Before you embarked on the Corniche there, I was, a bit, I was a bit nervous about how you might handle it. But, well, but that was very nice. Thank well, you. Well, Jez, let's, let's, let's indulge both, both of us for a minute. Mm. And let's talk about 20 years ago mm. when, um, the, when uh, a, a very raw work experience boy, um, yours truly, w- walked into your office and demanded a job. I mean, we're going to be talking about cycling media today, where it is today. It was a very different place back then, wasn't it? It was a, it was a sort of thriving, it was a niche, um, very kind of offbeat, but, but sort of thriving cottage industry, wasn't it? It's funny because I was thinking about this the other day and what a small pool it was as well. And like how when, you know, we first launched pro cycling I, it was hard to find people who knew enough to write about what was happening in european racing and there was a kind of i guess there's it was almost single figures you know so i was desperate to find young voices like yours um you know people people who were massive enthusiasts and who could write and who had language skills and so on and so forth all of, all of which you had of course and and it was it was really difficult really really difficult because I, I started pro cycling with william Fotheringham and he was basically we were both even then we by those stands we were fairly long in the tooth already so we did need you know like a like a youth policy to back up what what we were doing and it was it was really hard and now of course you know I look around at all the other magazines that are out there and the websites and everything else that's happening on social and there's so many voices now um i mean a big range of quality i'd say that as well with some with some of them but you know there are so many enthusiasts and so many people who want to get into the cycling media and who are working around the world in the cycling media you know at some level or another that it's it's a huge pool now well we will be talking about the media at length and let's start with the traditional news roundup in fact before we get into the meat of today's episode. Um, it's completely dominated this week by some extremely sad news. We'll get to that in a few minutes but first let's look at some other headlines and we'll start with the world champion and news of his plans for 2023. To be precise we've learned in the last few hours that as was widely predicted and expected Remco Avenepoel will line up at the Giro d'Italia next year. The reigning Vuelta a España champion made the announcement in a video yesterday, I think, shot during a very early route recon down on the Amalfi Coast. Um, Of course, as well as that very picturesque fifth stage of the race, um, the Giro is going to feature three individual time trials and a total of 70 kilometers against the clock, which is no doubt a key reason for Avonapol and his team's decision. Remember, they'll be called Sudal Quickstep in 2023. But chaps, not really a surprise is it we saw this coming, partly because of that route announcement and the the number of time trialing kilometers there will be in 2023. I mean, I think for me, it's it's kind of, it's kind of clear that the lack of time trialing in the tour, the, you know, they they are very dictated to by kind of their TV audience, and I think the Giro still has more freedom in terms of the TV audience. They they're not quite they're they they feels like the Giro. I don't know if I mean you're the expert on this, Dan. I, it feels like the Giro is still more attached to its history and its past culture than the tour, which is all about new audiences and you know global domination and and you know how big it is on social and how big it is online and so that that seems to me the cultural split so the tour thinks that time trials are boring i mean that's fairly clear and and the giro still thinks that the time trial is a beautiful art and it's a great exercise and you know has great style and all of all of those elements 
I mean, the the suspicion with the Giro, we'll come to you in a second, Larry, the, the suspicion with the Giro is that they're always trying to court someone or something. And the, the big, if there has been a theme of the last few years, it's the Giro. With the Giro, it's been this difficulty of attracting the biggest stars and their desperation to attract the biggest stars. And we, we never know how sort of explicitly or how shamelessly some people might say they are trying to lure, in this case, Remco. Yeah, I mean, I, in the end, I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily. You know, it's like uh, every race kind of has to look out for themselves. And if the Giro can find a way to do that, then it's not bad. But, you know, I think it's also nice to kind of have a race that still is sort of like a classic grand tour like that. Because, you know, like I remember I grew up, you know, watching in the Lance era and stuff like that. And there were these 50K TTs in the tour. And I just thought that was like the coolest thing ever, you know, to see like. Why? Well, why? Like, I don't know. There was something about like, is he going to catch like this other leader or something, you know? And to me, that was like the coolest but That was thing literally ever. the narrative. That was the only narrative. Yeah, I know, but that was kind of w- cool. Will you win by lot, three minutes you know? or four? Hmm? Will you win by three minutes or four? Yeah, but I mean, I don't know. For me, I, I think it's kind of nice to see that some some races are still like respecting that because on the other hand, if they keep going the way they're going, like we won't even have time trials in, you know, five, ten years. So like, it's like in the end for guys like me or something, it's like, what's even the point to focus on a TT if there's like, you know, maybe you do like two, three TTs a year, you know, it's like, what if you train twice a week on your TT bike for three time trials in a year, like that's not really that much. Right. So I think it's hard. I think uh, I'm glad that they still have some time trials there. No, I think it's, I think, I think you're right. Cause I think the other thing is that people think that every time trial is boring, but it's not the case. I mean, the majority of time trials, in stage races, in longs, in the Grand Tours, don't have an effect on the outcome. But every now and then, as we know, you get a real humdinger, don't you? You get, you know, mm. Roglic versus Pogacar. You get Fignon versus Moser. You get Le Mans versus Fignon. You know, you get you get a time trial that's so that's so dramatic that it makes it, it makes the argument for always having time trials. Yeah, I mean, imagine if they did like a 50k TT like the last day of the tour. You know, I mean, as in before the Champs Elysees, that'd be pretty crazy. You know, it would keep the race open until the last moment. So, who knows? I'll be I'll be quite curious to see Larry, given the paucity of time trial in the Tour de France this year, and the fact that the time trial itself it might not even require. Well, I don't think the whole time trial will require a TT bike. I mean, is it a useful investment of time for GC riders who are targeting? the Tour de France, to even bother with a wind tunnel, to even bother with training once a week on their time trial bike? I mean, I think it always is because otherwise, like, you know, maybe you're not going to win the race uh, with a TT if you're not, like, amazing, but you'll definitely lose a race. And so, like, you have to have a minimum basic level of performance in time trialing. And, like, you can't just forego things like uh, doing the wind tunnel and all this testing because, like, otherwise, like, you'll hemorrhage time and uh, you won't have a chance. Even even over 10 kilometers because it's, you know we are talking about potentially 10 kilometers of ridden on a time trial bike in the tour de france next i mean year. between like a good tt guy and like an average tt guy like that can be a minute in 10k which is just insane you know uh that's like a lot of time you know so so yeah i think uh i still think it's important unless they just totally get rid of them <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a, if, if you really think that time trials are boring, which I'm not sure they always are, if you really think they are, then I can see the argument that, you know, they're going to, you're going to lose the audience, you know, because of them. And you, and, you know, if you are a race like the Tour de France, then your TV ratings, I mean, they must, 
you you'll know more about this than either of us again dan because because they must study the ratings on an hourly on a minute by minute basis i i expect you know but 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 if you think they're really boring then why not just do the way with them completely rather than having them there as a token you know because it's almost like if you're going to have 9k 10k 11 but why why bother yeah. hmm I mean, I'm a big advocate for all time trials to be team time trials, partly to communicate, partly to convey to a lay audience why teams are important in cycling, which is not always that clear for someone watching for the first time. Anyway, chaps, we should move on. Uh, more Remco news. He and Annemiek van Vleuten have respectfully been crowned the men's and women's Velo d'Or winners. This is cycling's answer to the Ballon d'Or in football, prize to honour the best riders of the year as organised by Velo magazine in France. Voted for by a panel of experts, including you, Jeff, That's right. I think, yeah, still. So still. Um, Van Vleuten's award was historic. It's historic as this was the first time since the inception of the prize in 1992 that women had their own award and not been lumped in with the men. I don't think anyone would really argue with the identity of those two winners, would they, or what they've achieved this year? It's interesting because that award has changed in the last 18 months or so. There was There was a kind of, uh, how should I put it, a backroom campaign within the press room to try and get that to become a more diverse award and to get the women recognised in their own right. Which So I'm, I'm really pleased that has finally happened. Long overdue, of course. You know, it should have happened a decade ago or more. But it's, but it's, but it's really <laughs> good that that has happened because it was absurd that you had um, a panel who were voting on kind of, you know, riders who had far more, op- male riders who had far more opportunities on bigger platforms to show what they could do than the women did. So... It's re- it's really good that that has happened. I think I just wanted to make that point because uh, I think I think it is a real advance that that has happened. Did you vote this year? Yeah, were yeah. you on the panel? Yeah. Who did you vote for? These two? Uh, yeah, I don't think there was any other choice really, was there? I suppose people could make a case for Wout van Aert, and although Wout van Aert didn't win a big classic, and they could make a case for Pogacar. Van Aert, I guess, would be mainly on the basis of the Tour de France that he rode, but. But I think if you win a Grand Tour on the world title, you know, it's hard to mm. it's hard to go against that really. Chaps, we've now reached the extremely daunting cyclocross and track section of the news roundup with no Rob Hatch to help me out today. Uh, we'll start with the marginally easier one, cyclocross, and I'll say that Mathieu van der Poel celebrated his return to action on knobbly tyres with victory in the World Cup rating Hulst at the weekend. Van der Poel started at the back of the grid, but charged through the field to take an emphatic victory. Tom Pidcock, meanwhile, seemed to be cruising to a podium place when he broke a rim on the final lap, hence couldn't finish. If his ride wasn't impressive enough, Van der Poel provided an eye-catching encore by logging a 7 kilometers, 3-minute, 50-second per kilometer run shortly after collecting his winnings. Uh, the women's race in Hulse saw a second straight World Cup win for Puck Peterser, ahead of Femke van Empel, whose hopes were jeopardized earlier in the race, again by, a, was that a crash or a mechanical? Um, one of the two. Van Empel still holds a commanding lead on the World Cup standings. Larry, have you been following the cyclocross? No. I mean, I still open okay, up, you know, we... cycling news and stuff like that in the morning. So I saw that Van der Poel won a race. Uh, saw some people broke wheels and stuff, but that was about it. You know, I, I very sounds lightly like, follow the headlines. Sounds like you have a similar relationship <laughs> to cyclocross as me. Um, last week, we talked at length about the UCI Track Champions League in Berlin. There was another round of that series at the weekend, this time at Saint-Quentin-en-Yvelines in the suburbs of Paris. As a result of those races, Mathilde Gros is leading standings in the women's sprint, while it's Harry 
Laverson in the men's sprint in the endurance events, it's Jennifer Valente who leads and Claudio Imhoff um, in men's endurance, did I say? Um, the competition is heading into its final weekend in London. I think it's two days, the final round. That's this weekend. Staying in France, we learned today that the 2024 Tour de France will finish with a time trial in Nice. We know that the Olympics are taking place in Paris in 2024. We suspected that this may lead to changes to the traditional finale of the Tour. It'll be the first time for 35 years that the race has finished with a TT, the last, of course, famously, infamously, having taken place in 1989. And it will be the first time the race has ever finished outside of Paris. I am very much looking forward to the the race not finishing in Paris, chaps. And uh, I think a time trial, we don't know how long the time trial, unless I miss something today, um, we don't know how long the time trial will be. I'm sure it will feature the Promenade des Anglais, but um, I think that's quite a mouth-watering prospect. Yeah, I'd agree. Yeah, that's completely. pretty cool. Oh, sorry, you go. <laughs> no, no, I, th- I, think, I, th- I, think it's, I think it's great that we're not finishing in Paris for a change. And also, if uh, the reports are right... Uh, we're starting in Italy, aren't we, as well? So, so I think it will be um, it will be a really interesting tour, and presumably a lot of it will be focused in in the southern half of France, I'd imagine, because I can't I can't see we'll end up in Brittany at any point, really. Well, maybe we will. I don't know, but um, and and that whole summer should be fantastic, really, with the Olympic Games so hot on the heels after after the finish of the men's race and then the women's race as well. The only thing is, if you look at the scheduling of the men's race and then the women's race, I think they're moving when the men's race back a week earlier. That's what I've heard, I think. But but also, you know, it, for the women's, from the Tour de France fam perspective, it gives a very short window of recovery from that to, to the women's events in the Olympic Games. So that'd be interesting to see how people manage that. Larry, these will be home roads for you. So we at the Cycling Podcast will expect nothing less than uh, than a resounding victory on the final day of the 2024 Tour de France from the Motel Maestro. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, is, what's the word, is there any word on the street about the route? No, actually, just general honest, buzz I mean, about I this? I had only read the rumors before. And now that you said that, that's the first time I realized that it was actually confirmed. So, um, but now that I know that, I guess I can ask around because surely... Uh, some friends and teammates and stuff they'll know they'll know a bit uh i guess because like you know there's a lot of guys like amael menard he used to be my team on bmc he's pretty involved in the cycling community here and stuff so surely he has something to do with it and i'm sure uh sure we'll know the route soon enough you know i mean we've been saying this for a long time on the podcast that i generally really enjoy these finishes of grand tours that i have in the giro and in Spain in particular, the Vuelta, when the Grand Tours are finished outside of, well, the traditional sort of alighting points. So um, particularly with the Vuelta, with Santiago de Compostela, you know, it's the end of the the, the Camino and it, that has a symbolism. It's the end of a, you know, an epic journey, a pilgrimage. And you know, I've always enjoyed it when the Vuelta is finished there a couple of times. And then similarly, the the arena in Verona in for the Giro, you know, often in Paris, I feel the Tour de France gets lost. It feels lost. There's a kind of complacency that it's always going to finish there. And I don't feel the Parisians are that excited about it. So, yeah, I really look forward to this. I don't know if you... Yeah, it's funny because like, I'm actually a little bit of the opposite opinion. I mean, it'll be cool because it's in Nice, you know, uh, and like that's where I live. But like... You means know, you get home early. I, means you, means huh? you get home early, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Perfect. I'll have to organize the after party then, I guess, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, But, uh, you know, I think like, 
don't know, every time I've done the, um, the Vuelta or the Giro and then it, you know, it finishes not in like essentially the country's biggest city. I always feel like it's kind of a letdown a little bit, you know, like every time I've done the Vuelta in Madrid, I think it's so cool. You know, there's something about like finishing in the biggest city of the country. And like, I don't know, you know, it's something like, um, I don't want to say like magical or something, but you know, like there's something about like finishing in sort of like maybe the most important city in that country to sort of cap off I like think, the tour, you know? Yeah. I, I think it depends on the, the specific circumstances, doesn't it? In Madrid, I must admit, every time the Vuelta has finished in Madrid in recent years, I've also enjoyed that, but partly, in fact, largely in some cases due to the, well, the huge South American population in Madrid, and they've usually had a big reason to celebrate on the last day, and they've accounted for, I would say, over half of the crowd, and it's really felt like a big occasion. Mm -hmm. They've been celebrating, whether it's Quintana winning or another Colombian rider finishing on the podium or Carapaz. Um... And the Tour de France also, the last couple of years we've seen well, with COVID, with access being restricted to the Champs-Élysées, also the, the the growth of the hospitality area on the Champs-Élysées. And it, it just feels as though the, the the lay public, the sort of great and washed, are kept further and further away from the finish at the on the Champs-Élysées. I'd, I'd felt fairly jaded about the Paris finish for years and years and then because of the pandemic and obviously we didn't have, we weren't there or we didn't, we didn't have the Paris finish in the, at the same extent there weren't the crowds. I can't remember. Oh, we had the time trial, didn't we? Anyway, yeah. But, but, but so when, when we went back to Paris the first time after, after the pandemic, I actually found it really moving that the race had gone back to the grandeur of the, of the capital of France, you know, where, where the seat of the race was, you know, effectively, but I think also, you know, the capacity for that stage to be really dull, you know, I mean, as a spectator, I'm not, from a rider's perspective, I'm sure it's really invigorating and you just feel euphoric. I can't imagine what it feels like. You must feel completely elated. But from a spectator's, from a spectator's perspective, and certainly from a journalist's perspective, it's just like a stressful day when there's one story, which is so-and-so won the sprint. And basically you write everything else, you know, is written like the day before or you don't even watch the race, you know, apart from, apart from the sprint, apart from the sprint, you know? Yeah. I, I think riders like dull last days, you know, there's something about <laughs> like just going along, you know, taking some photos, talking to your friends and like not really being stressed. And then in the end, like it's always hard, uh, you know? So like, I don't know. I kind of like this sort of like parade procession, uh, last day of grand tours, but, but you yeah, know, I mean, that's from, the inside not uh it's probably not awesome to watch but yeah there's one thing i do like which is you know you're in the press room and the race finishes so you watch it on tv and you do the press conference then you think i'll go and get a beer i'll go and get coffee and then i'll write some more you know in the next half hour or something so you go down to kind of wherever when when they used to have the press room in the big hotels up up near the arc or the port Mayo, and you go down and there and you be in reception or in the bar or something and the riders would come straight in on their bikes and go straight into the bar where their wives were and start drinking. And that was That's great. Awesome. And they just lean their bikes yeah. against the lift and just go straight. And that was always kind of like, they were really demob happy, you know, and that was, that was a kind of special, special moment. Yeah. Guys, last bit of news. And it is a tragic story. Just yesterday, the 51 year old former multiple classics winner, Davide Rebellin was killed by a lorry in a hit and run incident. I'll call it an incident or an accident. Um, just a few kilometers from where he was born and grew up in the Veneto region of northeast Italy. Uh, Rebellin had become best known in recent years for his extraordinary longevity. Indeed, he had only formally retired from professional cycling just a few weeks ago. 
At the time of the recording, of our recording today, the driver who struck Rebellin is still at large on the loose. He reportedly stepped out of the cabin of his lorry to survey the wreckage of Rebellin's bike and the victim indeed before returning to the vehicle and fleeing. La Gazzetta dello Sport reported this morning that the crash and the driver's escape were captured by 11 road surveillance cameras. Um, Rebellin had begun his pro cycling career in 1992 after an amateur career that had prompted some experts to declare him the crown jewel in the golden generation of Italian talent, also include the likes of Marco Pantani and Michele Bartoli. He was briefly touted as a potential Grand Tour winner and indeed maybe even a successor to Miguel Indurain at the Tour de France, but he eventually found his calling in hilly one-day classics and indeed made history in 2004 by winning Amstel, Flesh and Liège in a single week. He was humble to a fault and some said vir- too virtuous to fulfil his true potential in a sport by then riddled with EPO doping, but that notion was debunked when Rebellin himself tested positive for a form of EPO and was stripped of the silver medal that he won in Beijing in the Olympic road race in 2008. He always maintained his innocence even after returning from his ban and his passion for cycling was something else that he also maintained until the very end, bouncing from one poorly funded continental division team to the next at races in the most far-flung destinations right up until a few weeks ago. I mean, chaps, I'm just going to read... Well, one of the many tributes or a bit of one of the many tributes in the Italian press um, this morning, just about, a, you know, a real outlier of a rider. He was a sort of anachronistic rider in some ways, a monastic rider, um, had had none of the, the sort of swagger and the star quality of, of some of his peers in that great Italian generation, well, what we thought at the time was a great Italian generation. But this was Marco Pastonesi, a famous um, former La Gazzetta dello Sport, writer about Rebellin today. I've never known such a humble rider and yet he'd won so much. I've never known such a diligent rider. In training where an hour too long was better than 10 minutes too little. In his diet so much so that he'd become a vegan. In his philosophy and profound respect for nature. In his spirit that of a committed Catholic not one of convenience or just appearance. In his honesty for to whomever asked who or what the hell was making him carry on, he'd reply with a smile and say, me. I've never known such a polite rider. He listened, answered and apologised, even when, frankly, he was the last person who needed to do that. He had the first name of a king and a bellicose, belligerent, yes, rebellious surname, and yet he was peace personified. Well, chaps, extremely sad news, and certainly those words from Marco Pastonesi tally with my experience of Davide Rebellin over the years. I've told a story on the podcast before. Um, I wrote a big profile piece about him in Pro Cycling Magazine three or four years ago, maybe a bit more than that, and you know went into quite a lot of detail about his positive test, and and it was it was a. a a uh, piece that didn't really show him in a particularly flattering light. Um, I did send him the piece, the PDF of the piece when it came out and he replied, he wrote this beautiful, um, very magnanimous email. I, he didn't speak particularly good English, but he sort of thanked me for sending him the PDF and, and congratulated me on the publication of the piece afterwards. And that was kind of typical of, um, of Rebellin, but just absolutely awful circumstances in, in which it happened yesterday. And I know that this has got a lot of people talking and thinking about their experiences on the road. And, you know, I, I don't really cycle that much anymore. But looking from afar, it seems to me that um, the roads are feeling less and less safe in a lot of places in Europe. I mean, yeah, I think that's true. You know, I think it's kind of scary when 
It seems like almost every year now there's just a similar thing. Uh, unfortunately, it seems to happen a lot in Italy as well. Um, but, you know, I don't know. I think, you know, this probably has to do something with, <clears throat> you know, the rise of cell phones and everything and, you know, just distracted drivers. And, yeah, it's really sad uh, that it ends up, you know, I guess taking lives and things like that. So it's just really horrible. But I, I would say, like, you know, that's the thing – say what you will about, you know, any, anyone like Rebelline or whatever, or what your opinion of him was as a rider, you know, I think like it's such a tragedy and it doesn't matter, you know, uh, it's just terrible that something like that can happen to someone just out riding their bike, uh, you know, I guess going for a normal ride. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Cause I, I mean, I, I still go out for very, very, very slow and gentle, easy rides these days, but, but, um, you know, on, and I live in Britain, obviously, where I guess the cultural cycling it's better than it used to be, but it's still it's still not really a part of our culture at all. So I go I go on very quiet roads out in the country where I know I won't encounter big trucks really, or you know, I might see maybe a couple of tractors or something. But but you know, it's it's you're still aware every now and then you're reminded of the risk that you're taking and how much trust you have to put in the hands of people you've never met who don't know you because they're driving a ton of metal. And it's a story like this. I mean, isn't it ironic that he would have he had such a long career and rode so many races and must have been in so many dangerous circumstances and races, especially racing in the era when when he raced. When I guess safety. I mean, we talk a lot about safety now, but I guess it was even worse back then. You know, it, isn't it ironic that he should retire and then this happened? It's just it's awful. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Euros. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors. If you use the Super Sapiens app on your phone to monitor your glucose levels in real time, well, with Christmas coming up, maybe it's time to start dropping a few hints to your nearest and dearest that a Super Sapiens energy band would make the ideal Christmas gift for you. Or maybe it would make an ideal Christmas gift for somebody else you know. The energy band by Super Sapiens is a really neat bit of wearable tech. It's a bit like a wristwatch, really. It goes around the wrist and it gives you your glucose data at a glance. Now, the Super Sapiens app on your phone is pretty good in almost all circumstances, but the energy band really comes into its own when you are riding your bike or running because you can just have a look at what your glucose data is doing in real time without having to reach for your phone and open up the app. Go to supersapiens.com to check out the energy band and to find out more about how the Super Sapiens system works and also have a look at some of the other accessories. 
In the meantime, also, have a listen to the Super Sapiens podcast. One of the recent guests was Robbie Ketchell, a sports scientist who started his career at Garmin Sharp and has since moved on to Team Sky, now Ineos Grenadiers, of course. And in that episode, takes a really deep dive into the way that sports scientists and elite athletes are utilising all of the data that an app like Super Sapiens and the system of continuous glucose monitoring can give them to tweak fueling strategies, uh, tweak nutrition strategies, and see how the body is responding to all manner of factors. It's a really interesting episode, a real deep dive, as I say, and you'll find the Super Sapiens podcast wherever you listen to the cycling podcast. Now, very quickly, before I hand back to Daniel, Larry and Jeremy, a heads up that we've got a short episode of Kilometre Zero coming early next week. It features Francois Thomasot, our very good friend Francois, talking about a book written by a French writer, philosopher and former racing cyclist Olivier Haralambon. And the book was published in French as Le Coureur et son ombre, which translates as The Cyclist and His Shadow. And it's a book that we published here at The Cycling Podcast a little bit earlier this year. And so we thought we'd tell you a bit more about it, what to expect from The Cyclist and His Shadow. So that episode of Kilometer Zero will go out on the free feed early next week. Well, chaps, I said at the start of today's episode that we're going to be thinking about the media. We're going to be thinking about the year that was from the point of view of the cycling media 2022. We're going to be talking about some issues that well, are of great concern in cycling media at the moment, prompted by some recent events that we'll, we'll discuss in a minute. But in each of the, the next three parts, we're going to start with what I have sort of nominated as the, the big story of every month or maybe the most the story that I see as being the most impactful that may have or I thought at the time um, have a significant impact either on the rest of the year or indeed the whole future of professional cycling um, you know Jez you're talking about when we well when when I started um, when you welcomed me into the pro cycling fold 20 years ago it struck me just going back through the year and the headlines that Cycling is a slightly less eventful place than it was once, that it was in a certain era. There were whole months went past this year when all anyone spoke about really was the racing, which which um, not too long ago would have felt like a, a bit of a pipe dream, um, something that could never happen. I mean, I've had the experience of researching stories and going back and just looking at taking single months from years like 2007, 2008, and there were pretty grisly headlines certainly as far as doping and scandal um, was concerned breaking three times four times a day in some cases um, yeah but fortunately I mean when, when pro signing was launched we kind of launched in the back of the Festina scandal and then we were we were buoyed by the optimism going into a new year of kind of like you know that that will never happen again because everybody was banging the table and saying you know, we'll never be so humiliated we'll never be so ashamed of cycling again we'll, we'll move on from here and that was the summer that Lance won his first tour, and we all know what happened after that. So, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a fresh a fresh new dawn. And then, as editor, I was there for like kind of seven seven years or something. I think it was in the end, and had to contend with the fact that you know we put multiple riders on the cover, and then you know <laughs> a week couple of weeks as it's the, the curse of pro cycling, you know, famously the curse of pro cycling, that we would put someone in the cover, but as this kind of like oh we can go with this guy, we're fully confident with this guy. And then, you know, we'd have some kind of 
It would be on sale for like four days, you know, and then the story. And then the shredder back. came out again. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. you'd just be like, you, you, you couldn't believe it, you know. And I think there was one, I don't know which was the best season for that, but there were. There I were, think it was 2006. What? I think 2006, we had an unbroken run of, of about stars. six months where every cover star was exposed within two months. And that was when I, and that was when I had my breakdown. And I'm not joking. <laughs> and I'm not joking. Because I think, I think, you know, that was kind of, when you were when you were running the magazine in those circumstances and kind of you know we had advertising revenues to think about subscribers and all of those other channels of revenues that used to come into print magazines back in the day the good old days you know that that to mount to manage all those expectations as well as the expectations of the readers who were obviously a lot of them were writing to us outraged disappointed cancel my subscription i'm burning my bike you know i'm burning my u.s postal <laughs> kit whatever it was you know <laughs> And you had to kind of like, you almost became a counsellor sometimes to people. I mean, I'm sure you've had this experience as a journalist as well, Daniel, where, where you're kind of almost saying to people, you know, keep the faith, keep the faith. And of course, as you know, the reason you go into that that sport to cover that sport is because you're passionate about it. It's not because, you know, we, we none of us got into it because we wanted to write stories about kind of what was happening with Dr. Ferrari or, you know, oppressing Puerto or anything. We we got into it because we wanted to cover the races and write stories about how beautiful the sport was, you know. So it's managing all those kind of changes and the stress of dealing with all those different interests. You know, it was, it was a really, really difficult period. And it is, it is very different now. I mean, I would say that I think, you know, I'm, I'm watching the World Cup, not every game, but I'm watching some of the games, the most interesting games, the most, you know, electric games. And and uh, no one ever talks about doping in, cycl- in football. No one ever talks about it in tennis. And cycling remains the whipping boy, I think, for the evils of, you know, pharmaceutical enhancement. And it's 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 a shame that so much of that mud still still sticks because I have a lot more confidence than I used to have. And I also have a lot more belief that, you know, throughout the men's and women's peloton, there are, there are riders with real integrity and, you know, um, who are as passionate about the sport as I was when I was their age, you know? So I, it, it's just a shame that no, I haven't, I've listened to quite a lot of output and watched a lot of output in terms of world cup and the D word is never gets mentioned at all, but it's the world cup, you know, it's the pinnacle of that sport. So it's gotta be, you know, you, no one's talked about the testing or anything, but so cycling, cycling, you know, it's even kind of 50, well, it's a decade, isn't it? Since the arms, Armstrong Oprah interview, even, even now we still kind of, we still have that legacy in the background. And um, I, I always get anxious, you know, when, whenever kind of like on the tour, I was getting anxious as, as the press conferences go through, you know, you go through the three weeks, you know, Oh, there's going to be one press conference and there was there was this year as well you know with with Wout van Aert there's going to be one where where the question is asked and it kicks off you know and it always always happens and um it, there's not many other sports that have that let's look at the year then let's look at the the main headlines that I've picked as I said month by month um so let's look at the first four months of the year in January Egan Bernal's training crash in late January another unfortunately sadly another incident involving a lorry um that 
the legacy of that crash was obviously that Egan Bernal well, he missed the Grand Tour season entirely and for a, for a while it looked as though the continuation of his career was in jeopardy. In February, Russia invaded Ukraine and the IOC recommended that all Russian athletes be banned. That's not quite what happened. March, I think Biniam Gomai's victory in Ghent Vavelgem was a huge story, very, well, certainly poignant, symbolic, um, with an impact perhaps on the future of the sport. And in April, well... Again, racing really took centre stage there. Remco Avenepoel saved what had been a disastrous classics campaign for Quickstep Alpha Vinyl by winning Liège-Bastogne-Liège. But that was a bittersweet day for the team because it was when Julien Alaphilippe had a terrible crash, which, well, really um, set the seal on what was already a bad season for Alaphilippe. Um, Larry, any of those stories strike you as being particularly, or did they at the time, um, strike you as being particularly impactful or um sorry what was february and march again i missed those ones february so and march russia and invaded then, ukraine yeah okay the and I mean, russian I know, athlete i think the you know the thing with russia and like the russian athletes and everything that's definitely something that like we reflected a lot on you know especially the things like gazprom and all the riders there who lost their job and you know like it's i i think in the end uh that was a really difficult situation, you know, and it's something we talked about in the Peloton. Cause like, I don't know what the right decision is because here you have a lot of riders and, you know, I know a lot of people uh, on the outside give riders, you know, I guess a lot of shit for representing, you know, different sponsors um, that perhaps have, you know, things like human rights, uh, not the best human rights records and, um, you know, things like that. And, and, you know, I, I think the problem is they, they put a lot of this on the riders, but, you know, I, I think what people on the outside a lot of times don't realize is that like, you know, it's not like the riders have a choice of what some riders obviously have a choice of what team they ride for, but I would venture a guess that on Gazprom probably most of the guys didn't have any other option and, you know, they're trying to essentially make a living and, you know, put bread on the table. So, um, you know, I think that that's tough because like in the end, you know, you end up punishing sort of some innocent guys that also when they signed for this team, they had no clue that that was going to happen. Right. So, um, you know, I think you see a lot of casualties, uh, which is really sad. Um, but at the same time, I don't know what the right, uh, you know, I don't know if the right, there's, there is a right decision there. Um, so, um, you know, that's definitely something we talked about and that's something that stuck in my head quite a lot. Um, but, but yeah, I guess it is what it is. Larry, staying with you, cause we are going to talk more generally about the cycling media now, um, prompted, as I say, by some recent events. I don't think it's any secret that, well, last year we did a podcast, which was a kind of a, an ode to or a love letter to cycling magazines. And this was following, we've mentioned already pro cycling. It was the last issue of pro cycling about a year ago, that magazine closed down. Um, we've seen the, Velo, the, the, the demise of Velo News, the printed magazine in the last few months. And then we've also had colleagues, and this is well publicized, well documented, that um, the the cycling tips, Velo News group, so they're in the umbrella of, of outside. Um, there have been layoffs and job losses recently. So, um, you know, there's a sense that this is, is quite a, a grave, serious moment for the cycling media. But I want to start with you, Larry. Um You've been in the pro peloton ten years, mm. um, and 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 I I guess we as journalists always feel as though you riders have a 
kind of a, a bit of an oblique relationship with the media. You, you sort of, well, you probably understand more aspects of it than most writers because, you know, you're now on this side of the fence when you're doing the podcast. Um, but what are the main, from your point of view, what are the main changes that you've seen in 10 years in your interactions with the media and maybe also in the way that your team tell you, advise you, want you to interact with the media? Yeah, so I guess, I mean, if we'll approach this from sort of two sides, is that like first, in terms of like, if I think when I started consuming um, cycling media, you know, I would say like the biggest thing you got Velo News and, you know, all these magazines or went on these websites was actually to see results. And I have to say one thing that changed really a lot um, in the last years since I started was pro cycling stats. And, you know, I think all of a sudden everyone went from, being happy to get this magazine that, you know, had a little nice article on Il Lombardia and the results, you know, like a month later, uh, because like there was really not that many places to access that content, especially like if you're in the U S something like that. And then, you know, with the rise of, you know, I guess the internet and then also social media and everything, all of a sudden you could get the results really easily. You know, you could stream all the races, um, you know, now luckily legally uh, <laughs> in a lot of ways um, with GCN and everything like that, which is cool because that just really didn't exist. You know, like if you were a cycling fan 10 years ago, it was super hard to uh, watch bike racing or, you know, find out who won races, things like that. You know, it's like my mom got really good at uh, finding pirate streams uh, online to watch <laughs> the races I was in, you know, and like now, you know, you don't have to do that. Like there's an app for that and it's not like crazy expensive. So that's pretty cool. Um, so yeah, I, I have to say, I think that probably changed a lot in terms of like, you know, a lot of these magazines had to sort of think outside the box on like what kind of content they were going to produce. And I do have to say, I think pro cycling did a really good job of that. Like that was, I have to say, uh, probably my favorite magazine, um, you know, I guess growing up and, you know, more recently, um, because like, I don't know, I just found there was really good content, really nice articles, um, nice pieces in there. Um, but you know, I think some of the other magazines, they really struggled to create that kind of content because I think it's a lot easier and quicker to just write a bunch of stuff on like, you know, um, I guess races and results and bike reviews. Um, but then on the other hand, <clears throat> the other part of that is just like everything with social media. And like I mentioned to you, um, Daniel, the other week is like, you know, us as writers now, we're under so much pressure to just like produce content, 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 you know? And, um, you know, I know like... How is that? Could, if I can just stop you there, how... Just just explain that a little bit. You're under a lot of pressure. How is that communicated to you? Um, okay, yeah, I mean, maybe like it's not a requirement necessarily, but mm. it's understood that like it's something we kind of need to do. So from your teams, yeah, team primarily, team. but also other individual sponsors, but even, yeah, like sponsors or riders or whatever. Um, it's like, you know, there's always just this thing, you know, in the back of your head or in your ear, like, oh, you really got to do this. You know, it's like, I mean, actually, when we were on Aqua Blue, that was the only place that I would say, I think we actually had requirements. Like we had to post like a certain amount or, you know, about a certain sponsor. Everyone got, you know, maybe like two sponsors a month. And we had to do a post um, twice a month for these sponsors, you know, like, and whether that was on Twitter or Instagram or whatever, you know, that was the only place that it was actually required, I saw. Um, but, you know, it's like when I was a Neopro, 
uh, I was sponsored by a shoe company or Pearl Izumi, like, and uh, I had like a small contract with them. And, you know, for them, they just essentially wanted me to ride my bike and like uh, ride their shoes in the races, you know? And so they were happy if you had some good results, maybe you got on TV a couple of times and you were wearing their shoes, you know, that was like 2013 and like 2013 and 2014. And for that, like they were psyched, you know, now it's like with social media, you're expected to like be posting and producing content, videos, photos, this, that, the other thing. Um, just like, <clears throat> I guess like on the regular, you know, and, and it's something that I've struggled with a lot because like, I think it's a lot of people are like this, but like, you don't like doing something that you're kind of like forced to do. Right. Um, and so if it's natural, it's great. But, uh, if it's not You've natural, sort of got, then... most people, most people have a kind of inner authenticity policeman who there's yeah. something that jars <laughs> when they know they're not doing something that's authentic. Exactly. You know, and it's like, I was talking to another writer about this the other day and he said, you know, he has his sponsor and, and he said, the problem is he has to do, you know, maybe two posts a month for the sponsor. So then he said, in the end, he posts twice a month and only this sponsor, you know, like on Instagram or whatever. And he's like, you know, so then everyone, you know, gives him a lot of shit, whatever, but it's like, that's kind of where we are now. And, and I know, you know, like our team, they, I think they did sort of some, you know, outside, um, analysis or focus whatever. You know, they, yep. yeah they hired people to you know look but then they looked at every single person's like social media and i think they kind of like essentially charted them and then you know was really harping on the team on the importance of each of us building our own social media hmm. and so you know i know like on my team for example there's a lot of guys that actually hire an outside i mean the guy he works with the team but like they pay someone to run their social media for them you know and for me like i get it but in the end, I'd rather post like once a month and have it be genuine than have someone else do it for me every day. Um, but, you know, they're like, they just know they're not going to post that much. And they are like, well, it's important. So we need to be doing this. But I think there's somewhere in between is probably like the best balance because like, I don't know, I can see that. And some of these guys, they have great personalities. They're cool guys. And you can see like on their social media, it's just like not them. And, you know, it's just very sort of like, basic cut and dry and no personality and i find that kind of sad so i mean larry even in this this sort of latest wave of as i said job losses um and it's but it's it's a kind of a slow cold you could say of cycling media operatives um certainly in the print media over the last few months and few years one of the kind of allegations that's been leveled at the cycling world the establishment the teams the riders on mass is that you've realized that you hold the power for the narrative now and you also hold access to the the platforms the outlets whether it be instagram or twitter or something else and you no longer see or recognize the value the need um to to put that narrative in the hands of the traditional media that you think that you can do it without any filter and in fact it's better to do it without any filter it's better to post what you, what you're thinking on twitter than it is to tell a journalist who might who might misquote you or misinterpret things and the media i think jeremy would agree with me there are people in the media who think that this is one reason why the cycling media has struggled over the last few, the print media in particular. I, I don't necessarily agree with it fully, but yeah. it's certainly um, a rational argument, I would say. See, that's funny because like, I don't see it that way at all. Um, you know, I think like sometimes, you know, doing like a, an interview or speaking to the media, it's like in the end they ask questions that like, 
maybe other people are thinking about, but you would have never even been aware of. So in the end, it gives you a voice uh, and maybe it gives you access to more people that like maybe, I mean, I guess it's different if you're like Pogachar or something and everyone knows who you are, but I would say for like guys that aren't necessarily like the biggest in the sport, like uh, I definitely think there's, you know, I would say most guys recognize that it's important for us to have like the media in the sport and uh, on the sidelines and writing these articles. But, um, but yeah, I think maybe there are some people who they don't like the ability or they don't like losing the ability to control the narrative. Um, so maybe that, I guess, means uh, there's less interest in working with a normal journalist, but I don't really know. Jez, we'll come to your specific experience. You had a, a personal specific experience this year or have done in the last few months and um, we'll come to that in a minute but mm-hmm. just thinking about the situation generally I mean Larry's talked there about social media but to give us a bit of an aerial view of how you see this particularly cycling print media landscape yeah. at the moment well, I, it's really interesting hearing, hearing Larry's perspective on that especially as he's obviously very aware of kind of the the power of social media and and the and the power of kind of the riders now have through those channels as well or the teams and sponsors have through those channels and, and and in a way how the teams and sponsors are using the riders in a different way to when they use them in the past with kind of the main the mainstream press my my, my kind of feeling is that is that it's totally changed now and that the the the, the game of kind of certainly print print i didn't believe this at the start of the year but i'm now pretty convinced print is dead in terms of uh, a viable means it's not dead if you've got an existing title so if you're the editor of vogue or if you're the publisher of vogue or the publisher of you know vanity fair or something a title like condé nast traveler or you know the times or the guardian or the new york post or the washington post whatever you've got you know a long-standing audience that goes through, goes through the generations my experience was trying to launch something new that wasn't solely print because it was digital as well but that the print thing was the cornerstone of it. And even though it was very conservative in terms of its ambition, it, it, we got our asses kicked <laughs> and, and, you know, that's the only way you can put it. And, and uh, there were, there were other issues as well around that. Um, but basically I don't think there was an appetite for it. And I think the, you know, the delivery, of, it, it, it wasn't intended to be news at all. It was intended to be insightful, reflective, uh, content that uh, was able to step back from the kind of you know the hot house environment. We should say should, should just um, specify at this point we're talking about Stelvio magazine yes. that we we're going to yeah. talk about a bit more specifically in the next part. But yeah, um, that's yeah that's the magazine you're referring to. Yeah, so 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 there, there's a kind of hot house environment, isn't there? At races where we're all you know the race ends and everybody's everybody's making instant reactions, whether it's the riders on social, whether it's the journalists, whether it's TV crews everybody's got a deadline that within the next kind of half hour, hour, two hours, whatever, whether you're doing a podcast, whatever, you have to get some content out there quickly about what happened that day. So the, the idea for me was to do something that stepped back and was more thoughtful and considered and put things in context. You know, what, what was the context of this event, whether it was something in the, in the, in the fabric of the sport or whether it was something that was kind of, you know, within the culture of the sport or the history of the sport or something that was a political issue, like, you know, something related to UCI road uh, race safety issues or whether it was related to sports washing or sponsorship or, or whatever. 
big stuff, you know, bigger stuff than just kind of like who won the race and who crashed and whose fault it was, you know. So, so, but I think that the thing is now social, social media in particular is so powerful now and has, and has so overwhelmed print and has so overwhelmed even, even online as well now. I think, you know, it's, it's overwhelmed it so much that that's where people go. And if you've seen, if you've seen all the grabs on Twitter, like, you know, if you watch, for example, the World Cup again, if you're watching the World Cup, I didn't see any games last night. I just saw the goals on social media. You know, I just watched, watched all the goals and that was enough. I didn't watch the games. I haven't read any reports. I just watched the goals, made my own mind up and moved on. You know, and that's, I think that's the danger of racing as well, that, you know, if you watch like a, a two and a half minute grab online on a, on a social channel of like a mountain stage in the Giro, you know, kilometer 77 attack, breakaway, whatever, you know, kilometer 132 shoot on a descent, you know, uh, you know, a crash on a descent rather, you know, kilometer 186, you know, the decisive move and then the stage. And you can watch that in, in two and a half minutes. And it everything's really diluted now into very, very quick grabs, which is something that something that we always all live with. But I do think that that ability to fully understand the consent, the, the context of things is has been lost. And that's that's what print gave you, I suppose. You know, and the other the other sideline of this is, of course, is that when when I was younger, um, you know, my parents always had the Sunday newspapers and the and the daily newspaper, and it was on the breakfast table, you know, and on a Sunday morning, you know, my dad would get the the Sundays out and we'd sit and read them, and you know, I'd read the sports section and stuff. You know these big reads, like thousand word piece, two thousand word interviews and stuff like that. That's gone. You know that's gone. And I don't. I don't think there. There are still people who buy books. Thankfully, there are still people who buy magazines. But you know, it's a dwindling number, isn't it? Yeah, and the internet and its algorithms, which I think is a, a concept that we're all familiar with now, is engineering already. Well, you know, a lot of them were designed with the with the goal of engineering our minds towards in the direction of, as you say, just the quick grabs or the video, con- you know, the, the sort of TikTokable um, 20 second content. And as time goes on, the more, well, that becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, doesn't it? And um, yeah, we no, only want to consume that. I mean, I mean, the one thing I would say is watch, watching a, a mountain stage, you know, now every mountain stage is shown live in the grand tours, watching a six hour mountain stage from the rollout to the finish whether you whether you, whether you're watching it online or whether you're watching on a TV or watching a classic, you know, from start to finish, Flanders or San Remo or something, okay, it's quite boring in places, but it it's part of the context, isn't it, that you watch the boring bit in the anticipation of the exciting bit, or you you understand the full the full story of of that day, you know, whether the weather changes, wind direction changes, somebody loses a teammate, all of that, you know, and if things are just diluted or reduced down to this kind of like, you know, 77 second grab, you do lose something. I think you do. Oh, and I sure. think the, I think the riders do as well in a way, because, you know, you, you, people don't appreciate the suffering and the, the extent of the endurance and the full kind of the grandeur of the race. You know, if it's just reduced down to this kind of quick grab, you know. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. 
LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Regular listeners to the cycling podcast will know that commercial messages can be filed away with track cycling and cyclocross, that is to say activities which don't traditionally darken my door. However, I have occasionally made exceptions for wine and that is once again going to be the case boom boom today as most of you know over the last few years we at the cycling podcast have been teaming up with divine sellers of london to indulge the complementary passions of wine and grand tour racing every year we and divine indeed offer a giro d'italia case a tour de france case and a vuelta a España case and every year it breaks our heart to have to restrict our choices to only six bottles per grand tour some absolute rip snorters again missed out this year but but fear not ye wine gods because we and divine have found a home for them in a 2022 cycling podcast christmas selection we're going to hear about that selection now and bearing in mind how much some listeners dislike our wine chat we're going to frame this commercial message within the parameters of something else that was deeply unpopular with some listeners this year that is the 92nd time trial summary Greg Andrews of Divine Sellers is on the start ramp and he has 90 seconds to tell us everything about the cycling podcast Divine Sellers Christmas Selection. Off you go, Greg. Thank you, Daniel. So we've got six cracking wines lined up, starting with the Vigna de Eli Bianco from the slopes of Mount Etna, a wonderful sort of clean, crisp, lemon-tinged white where it has some minerality. Uh, we then go north up to Veneto, where we've got the fabulous indigenous variety Recantina made by Stefini Vidotto. Uh, wonderful barrel-aged wine, really good for this time of year, and fantastic winter drinker that only just missed out on the selection. Then across to France, Tour de France territory, where this year we didn't touch on a Rhone white. The Lafon didn't get in because of availability concerns. So we get the chance to put this in lovely textured white that should sit well on the dinner table sort of at this time of year. Then sort of moving across to Languedoc Roussillon, we've got the Catharsis Red, which is one of my favourites, a truly smashable Grenache that won't leave you labouring by the end of a stage. And then Moving down into La Velta territory, we're down right down to Cadiz, where we've got a fantastic Palomino pet nat, lovely sparkling textured pet nat that is a beautiful way to sort of start the festive season. And then finishing up in Ribeiro Sacra with a lovely Manthea, really sort of slaty, dark red fruits that come through, not overbearing, but equally enough meat on the bones to sit with most red meat dishes. You know. So there you go, Daniel. There's our six wines for the Christmas case. Hopefully everyone will enjoy them. And if nothing else, Merry Christmas. Greg, you've sneaked in under the time limit. How do people order? So we can easily order uh, via our website, divinesellers.com, where we should be on the front page. But equally, all the cycling podcasts cases are listed there and are still available for this year. That's Divine Sellers, D, the letter D, vinesellers.com. You'll find everything you need on there. Please drink responsibly and... Well, a Merry Christmas from me and a Merry Christmas from you, Greg. Merry Christmas. Well, chaps, we're going to get to our next 
four big stories um, May, June, July, August so we're talking about the spring and summer months um, the most impactful stories of those few months as decided by me um, Jai Hindley beating Richard Carapaz in quite an underwhelming Giro d'Italia um, not to take anything away from Jai Hindley's performance but as far as the spectacle was concerned it wasn't the greatest in June the Tour de France build up races were were decimated by COVID, easy to forget now. And we thought at that time that COVID might again dictate a big part of the narrative of the summer. That wasn't really the case. Um, another big story in June that sort of slipped under the radar, most people probably can't remember when it happened. Tom Dumoulin announced that he would retire at the end of the season, which, you know, given where Dumoulin was a few years ago, that's quite a big deal. July, I picked two because it was impossible not to pick two. Jonas Vingegaard shredded... Tadej Pogacar's cloak of invincibility which I think has a big impact on the way we view the, the future of the sport and more importantly the Tour de France fam exceeded all expectations really um, from lots of different points of view that finished on the last day of July and, and in, in August um, just to really a, a small bit of news a dispatch but something very significant Juan Ayuso signed the longest contract pro cycling had ever seen um, well, certainly the, the complete term of it is the longest that cycling's ever seen until 2028. Larry, how old will you be in 2028? Uh, uh, 38. You'll be old. Yeah. You'll be old. <laughs> um, Larry, just focus a second on the Ayuso one. Uh, we've been talking about this for a while now, The this new trend towards very, very long contracts at one end of the pro sport. So the mm. big names are getting these this inordinate inordinately long contracts now three three is kind of the minimum three years four years five years and you know we've seen i used to as i say 2028 um talk about how this is affecting the ecosystem a little bit because as i say it affects the ecosystem at both ends at the top and the bottom yeah i mean i definitely say even more so than the long contracts <clears throat> it's like there's just a huge push for young riders you know i mean I think in the end, having these super long contracts and seeing that as like a, you know, an okay thing to do or the mode, you know, I think that's a, that's cool for us actually, you know, it's like a lot of other sports, they have these super long, big contracts as well. So I think in the end, that's kind of like our sport modernizing rather than just, you know, focusing on really the short term. And I think, you know, that also comes from more so certain teams that have established backing for long periods of time, because, you know, I would say there's plenty of teams in the Peloton. They don't have, they don't have the luxury to know whether they'll have a, a sponsor even in, you know, five, six, seven, eight years. Um, so, you know, I think um, for me, the bigger part of that whole thing is just how everyone's pushing towards these young guys. And um, you know, it's like now everyone thinks they need to sign only 19 year olds. And like, you know, I think, I think I turned pro at like 22, 23. I did like all my years under 23. And then I stagiaired my last year and turned pro. And like, you know, that was pretty standard at the time. Um, and if you passed pro after like your, you know, third year under 23, you were considered kind of young, you know? And then if you did any earlier than that, you were like crazy young. And so, you know, like I remember, um, Mare Mohovic, for example, um, you know, he went like second year under 23 and that was like insane, you know, cause he was just so young. Now it'd be like, well, yeah, that, that's not even early anymore. Um, so I definitely think that's changed the landscape because now everyone is just hunting for, yeah, the next Remco and, you know, 
now half the signings are done on, you know, numbers and data and whatever, you know, it's like, you know, I've heard a lot about young guys who will get really good long contracts based solely on their data and their physiological data. Um, but as we've seen in the past is like, that doesn't always pan out into results on the road. Um, so in my opinion, I mean, I think we'll kind of like land somewhere in between in a few years. Um, you know, we'll be a lot more willing to sign really young riders, but I don't think it'll be like the only thing guys will sign because I think over time they realize that like some experience is needed in the team. Um, because if you have a team full of like 19, 20 year olds, it's going to be sort of hard to corral them. You know, it's like, uh, um, there's no one to really sort of guide them or teach them at the same time. Like maybe the veterans weren't always teaching them, you know, like the best things. So who knows, um, maybe it won't go like that, but I do think, um, in the end, like we'll see this really big push for young guys. And I think like it'll come back a little bit the other direction, but, um, but yeah, that's kind of my opinion. Jez, I said the big story, one of the big stories in July was the Tour de France fam. You mm. were there after that race. Um, I talked on the podcast about how it just felt, everything felt fresh and everything felt different. It was okay. It was France still. It was still called the Tour de France. We've seen Tour de France or Women's Tour de France before, but you know it was a different cast of characters to what we see in the men's. Um, a lot of the dogmas that we think we know about cycling that come from men's cycling were sort of blown, and even about women's cycling, in fact, were blown out of the water because um, we'd never we, we'd never had a women's stage race on that scale before, and it it just felt fresh and exciting in a way that often the men's Tour de France, in spite of the great racing of the last few years, doesn't. And it what was, was your experience? I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And it was funny because I was quite jaded because I'd done the men's race and I didn't go to Copenhagen, but I did the rest of the men's race. And so I was bluntly knackered when the women's race started as well. Uh, and I was thinking I've bitten off too much here because this is another week of, you know, starts and finishes. But actually it was it was the enthusiasm and the exuberance and the sheer joy from the riders themselves and the teams and also you know in the in the media as well was that embraced the whole idea was really really infectious i think there was it was a bit weird though because a couple of times it felt like mid-stage it felt like people were a little bit hesitant about making a commitment in terms of their racing tactics so there was it felt quite cagey until van Vloom really let rip in the vosges on the final weekend you know until until then it felt like people kind of hedging their bets because they were kind of nervous of what, how, how hard the race was going to be in that final weekend. And I guess from ASO's perspective as organizers, they felt they, they, I think they've learned from that because they may have felt that they got the kind of structure of the race slightly wrong. So they kind of had this slow build towards that explosive finale. But in terms of, um, I mean, I was, I wasn't expecting the crowds that we got. The crowds were as big as the men's race pretty much all the time, certainly in the mountain stages, and just the level of enthusiasm, you know, it's it was, as I say, for, for someone who's been on so many finish lines and stood outside so many buses waiting, you know, um, for, you know, a three-minute kind of interview, to, to be on the finish line at the buses in the women's race was a completely different experience. It was, you know, people were happy to talk for as long as you wanted. They were just massively enthused and excited. And it was a really, really positive vibe. And, and yeah, so I, I I thought it was a real highlight of the year for me, actually, I'm, I, I must say. And Jez, in the last part where we were talking about your experience this year 
with Stelvio. Um, mm. When you were at the Tour de France Fam, you were well. Stelvio was preparing its second issue. Is that right? Yes, you that's were, right. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, if you will, if you'd like to, just just summarize what happened with the, with the the magazine. I mean, well, let's let's go back a little bit. We talked about pro cycling earlier. Um, you were one of the launch editors of Pro Cycling. I spoke to you. Um, early in the year when this idea of launching a new magazine was starting to germinate, you, like a lot of people, were lamenting the demise of pro cycling. You thought it was a, a big shame and it left a bit of a space there, left a bit of a void because Cycle Sport, the other big British um, UK cycle magazine had gone a while ago and you wanted to build something kind of from the ashes of pro cycling. And, you know, you talked earlier about thinking print was dead, you know, just reading around a bit, in preparation for the episode today, I can see how, and I'm out of the magazine world now, but I can see how magazine publishers still build an argument for there being a future for magazines. Because there are magazines, particularly in the, in the States, there are magazines that are still thriving. And you can spin the numbers in such a way to suggest that actually the future of magazines is still relatively rosy. So what happened? No, I'll qualify that by saying new print launches are dead. Existing print that is healthy and has a good existing foothold in the market with a big subscription base, that those will survive for a while. What what happened was, I mean, it wasn't intended to be purely a magazine. It was it was on the back of the demise of pro cycling. There were conversations with the former publishers of pro cycling as it as it as it died about how 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 it could be resurrected sadly those conversations didn't lead anywhere and then the company that i was kind of in conversations with who'd approached me to do to 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 reboot pro cycling as a as a kind of reimagined brand that had a bigger digital presence they said okay if we can't do if we can't acquire pro cycling what what is there that we could do so we collaborated on a plan to try and launch a new title um and a new brand and a website and all the all the other stuff that goes with that which would would have been you know podcast and digital and social and all of that as well and so that was a big that was the grand plan um for various reasons which i think some of the some of the reasons we were talking about earlier on about kind of um the difficulty of persuading people to support that both um in financial terms and in kind of buy-in and i don't just mean money i mean buying in terms of belief and you know support for it um <clears throat> as stakeholders that that became that became really really difficult and and i think i think it maybe it's you know, it coincided, we launched it. It coincided with everything that was happening in Ukraine, with you know the energy and, and price scares, cost of living scares. You know, people pe- pe- people are cancelling subscriptions to Netflix and to all sorts. You know, because of all yeah. this stuff. So, and there have been other know, pressures that I've heard about in the magazine industry for years, increasing paper costs. In this was independent. I think of this predates the COVID epidemic. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it wasn't specifically that. I think it was more that kind of, you know, we were very conservative or I was always very conservative about the sale that we'd achieve. It was always going to be very limited. And I, I had, I had minimal expectations, but um, you know, it was just a, it's just a very difficult market. And I think, you know, you're, you're battling kind of all the digital content that people are hoovering up, um, which is very cheap. And, you know, they, they, it's free. A lot of it is free. And then, you know, you're putting out a product that people have to pay for, that you're intending to be a quality product that's high-end, that's got a premium price. You know, that you've got to have a really compelling argument now for people 
to go and buy that you know it's just it's the same it's the same with kind of you know you're shopping you know now i mean it's it's everything's getting so expensive for people who live relatively normal lives and have children and you know other commitments and stuff that you know magazines magazine subscriptions uh fine wines you know good cheese whatever it's all becoming it's all becoming they're all they're becoming luxuries stuff that wasn't that was just kind of stuff that you did before is now becoming a luxury item you know new shoes they're becoming luxury items and i think you know i think we we were we weren't aiming for kind of like huge sales we were just aiming to get a foothold but uh and maybe the content was too esoteric because i always wanted to do something that was kind of I, I felt I felt there was a lack of of cycling coverage that was, I mean, present company excluded, of course, that was that had real intelligence and kind of thought, and as I said earlier, step step back from what was happening to put to put things in context, in context to the world, just not the sport. So, so I was quite ambitious to do something that you know was fairly grown up and mature in those in those respects, and that you know because it was a quarterly magazine as well. You know, you got three months on every issue, so you can have a think. You know, you can think about what you want to say and the kind of issues you want to confront. Um, all the stuff that we've talked about, but but yeah, well, for whatever reason, after the first the first issue was flat, and then we worked really hard during the tour to get the second issue out with a, a lot more kind of um, fanfare and. Unfortunately, the publisher decided that even before the second issue was on sale, really, that they they weren't going to continue, uh, and that that kind of then there was a battle to try and look at other options, you know, for funding and stuff and investment. But uh, at the same time, you know, the situation economically was getting worse, and we ha- we have approached people, and they've said we're not investing in anything at the moment, and I think it's just it's coincided with a particularly grim period in terms of new businesses, especially in in media. It's coincided with, you know, the whole cost of living fear that is around Europe and is and a war, you know. So maybe, you know, maybe all the the fates were against it a bit, I think, as well. Um I, I think the digital content that is really intelligent. If you look at something like The Athletic, which, you know, is a very successful website in the States, which has done a lot of good stuff in terms of football in Britain as well. They that's more kind of grown up content. It's not as results focused. It has results and it has news, breaking news and stuff, but it's also more reflective and steps back and is, you know, more more insightful. And I, I think there's really room for that in cycling because cycling now is so I mean, Larry will know this. There are too many races, you know, too many airports, there are too many deadlines for the riders, I guess, and there are a lot of stress on the riders now. I mean, compared to when we both first started, you know, it seems like it must be it's a 12 month season now, you know, it's like, there's a, there's a lot of pressure on, on the riders and, you know, which means there's a lot of pressure on sponsors and race organizers and so on and so forth as well. And I think it needs a more professional, that the media in cycling used to be kind of quite fan oriented. And I think it needs to be treated more as a professional sport now than maybe it has been in the past, a global corporate, corporate funded professional sport. And that's what I still think there's a gap for. Just finally on the print media side of things, I mean, this is a sport obviously that's got an incredibly rich history and a rich heritage as far as print media is concerned. And, you know, a lot of the biggest races were 
or they were born, they were created by media outlets. And I think that's one of the reasons why people feel so upset and um, and determined to do something about the demise of print media and cycling. But Larry, in the you know, you talked earlier about the kind of messaging that you get from your team and that you have got in the past. I mean, your team's got a, um, a press officer who worked for years in the print media, Yves Perry. Uh, hello, Yves. Mm-hmm. Bonsoir. Um, a very good press officer, but he he's someone who understands the ha- understands what the value of the print media has been to professional cycling. But where is it in the hierarchy of priorities for you guys as riders? Is it something that's that you consider to be important? I mean, I think the thing is, is like probably the team considers it to be important. You know, we always get sort of like a media roundup every month, like on all the articles that, um, you know, were published on riders in the team or the team or whatever, and where they were published. Um, but you know, I, I would say for us, the problem is, is we don't really control that. You know, it's like, it's not like I can go call up a journalist and be like, Hey, you want to write a story on me? You know? And so yeah, can. Yeah, I, I can. think in the end, it's kind of like something that we just, it's there, but it's not like, um, you know, if people ask us, then, you know, we say yes. And I think the problem is, is now with social media and everything, it's a bit hard to, um, you know, sort through, you know, it's like every, you know, fan and his brother has like some, you know, blog on, you know, (laughs) I don't know, some random website that three people have seen and then they want to write an article on you, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think the problem is, is a lot of guys get sort of overflowed by these kind of requests and, um, you know, then it's like, well, what's, what's going to benefit me and what's not. And I think a lot of guys kind of just get fatigued by all these people asking them. Um, and you know, that's why I think at the same time we have, you know, these press officers to sort of filter. Um, but yeah, I think, um, I think that's probably something that's changed a little bit, but, but I think everyone knows that it's, it's important and it's good. And, you know, every time that like I've done an interview with, you know, one of the bigger cycling media outlets, you know, I always get like positive feedback that people, you know, I know read the article and it's always really nice, you know, so I'm always really a big fan of that, but it's just like, you know, um, I, I think at the same time, it's probably like, unless you're a big rider, you probably don't get those requests as frequently. Um, so, yeah. Do you get, do you get told to prioritize the media in terms of who it is? So if, if it's a TV interview, as your press team more enthused about that than they would be about a sit down interview with a journalist for a newspaper? Um, no, I don't think so. You know, I think the thing is, is like, um, both those kind of in other, in other words, in other words, yeah. if Daniel asks you, are you nice to Daniel? <laughs> then you would be to me. Usually it does help yeah. if you turn up with uh, a <laughs> cameraman Camera. with a big piece of yeah. 15 yeah. kilos worth of Sony electronics on his shoulder. Does yeah. help, I find. I, I think the thing is, is a lot of times those two happen in different situations, you know? So it's like, a sit down interview, like for our team, we used to always have this sort of November camp that, um, you know, the media would come to. And then like, you know, you'd have people there and that's where you would do an interview where like, you know, then you'd have like a, you know, sort of a written piece. Right. And then like the TV stuff with the camera and everything, that's more at the races. So, you know, I would say, I don't know, you know, it's very rare that like at the races, at least me personally, I've been interviewed for like, um, a story sort of, you know, um, and it's more so like, you know, a quick clip on, you know, like Eurosport or something like that, you know, like, Oh, what's going to happen today? I mean, I guess there is, yeah, the, the start zone and stuff like that. So 
it does happen, but it's, it's a lot shorter form interview, I guess, you know, it's like a few quick questions, but for, at least for our team, I know, like, it's not like they prioritize that it's like either, you know, it's kind of like, Hey, there's these people, they want to talk to you, um, at the start. And I don't know if they do any filtering before that, that's could possibly happen. But like on our part, we don't hear anything about the filtering, you know? Maybe there's 87 people waiting to talk to me and only two got the privilege, you know? But, uh, oh, I've, I've seen been it. banging on the door. Larry I've seen the queue, yeah. Larry. The queue stretching around the start village. Yeah. 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 I've, as, a, as a written press journalist, I've, always, I've had this experience many times where I'm, where I'm standing waiting to interview someone at the bus and then, you know, ITV turn up with Daniel and the camera yeah. and then you just get elbowed yeah. out of the way. It's terrible. <laughs> yeah. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science in Sport, our long-term supporters, of course, and I'm sure everybody knows the discount code off by heart to get 25% off at scienceinsport.com. Use the discount code SISCP25. Now, I'm going to mention the C word again. I'm sorry, I apologise, but Christmas is almost upon us. It will be here before we know it. And if you're anything like me, maybe you struggle for inspiration when people ask you what you would like for Christmas. I know I certainly do. And I tend to fall back on those staples that every cyclist uh, likes to have fresh supplies of. And that's things like water bottles, socks, caps, gloves, any of those accessories. It's nice to know you've got some brand new ones in reserve so that uh, although Christmas falls in the depths of winter for us here in the UK, it's nice to know that there's some new kit to break open at the first hint of sunshine when spring arrives in what, late February, early March, something like that. Certainly on the scienceinsport.com website, I've got my eyes on a couple of things. I really like the wide neck water bottle, 600 ml water bottle. Um, I like the wide neck because it means you can get all of the beta fuel powder into the bottle without spilling any on the worktop. And I've also got my eye on the new double wall stainless steel shaker, which uh, looks like it would be absolutely ideal for mixing up a post ride recovery drink of Rego, or actually I could do the Christmas cocktails in it maybe. Um, anyway, scienceinsport.com for all of your energy products, but also some really neat accessories. And sticking to the same theme, our closing partners at Map have absolutely everything for every cyclist, no matter what style or taste uh, tickles your fancy, uh, whether it's uh, clothing for winter or summer all those accessories i was talking about go to map.cc there really is something for everyone and the cycling podcast collection is all back in stock the brilliant dot jersey uh, went out of stock briefly but it's now back in stock so if you had your eyes on one of those go to map.cc and check out the rest of the cycling podcast range because there's a range of accessories that match the jersey those things that I was talking about earlier, socks, caskets look brilliant and match with the jersey and map do their own cycling podcast water bottle as well. And you'll be pleased to know that that too has a wide neck and it also has a really neat squeezy action. Um, so yeah, a real pleasure to drink out of when you're on your ride. Go to map.cc to check out the full range of map clothing, but pay particular attention to the cycling podcast collection, of course. Now back to Daniel, Larry and Jeremy. Well, chaps, we're almost at the end of our cycling year through the media lens, 2022, the year that was the big headline. September, chaps, the, the big story then, obviously, well, 
Remco living up to all of the sort of grandiose expectations we'd had of him for a while. Um, first at the World and the World Championships, that was a huge story. But in terms of news flashes, hard to beat Mathieu van der Poel being arrested um, on the night before the World Championships. Um, in October, the first World Gravel Championships didn't necessarily capture everyone's imagination, but it's something that could have a, an impact on the way this sport begins to look over the next few years. And in November, the quietest month usually, and so it proved this year, um, Naira Quintana's disqualification from the, from the Tour de France being confirmed. Now, I thought this was quite significant in that uh, there has been a bit of a trend over the last two or three years, the slight petering out of Colombia's golden decade. I mean, if you wind back three or four years, most people, if asked, if if you ask them what or who was going to be the dominant force, particularly in stage race cycling, the Tour de France and so on, there was such a wave of Colombian talent coming through. They would have said that these guys are just queuing up to win one after the other, one tour after the other. And it's not been the case. And Nidor Mann was very much the talisman of that movement. And his career, unfortunately, is in danger of petering out somewhat. So those are the sort of big stories of the autumn, chaps. Take your pick if you'd like to, if you'd like to hold forth on any of those. I, I was, yeah, I think what you say about Quintana is right. And, you know, the year started with Egan Bernal's disastrous training crash. And then the years ended with Quintana's disastrous DQ, you know, and, and you do think is that, is that the end of kind of the Colombian? It can't be though. It it can't be because it's too strong. It's got too strong a foothold now in there's Europe, a, the, in European the race, volume, surely, hasn't it? Yeah. There's a, the volume of Colombian riders and South American riders is significant. The, mm. the, they're not quite as present, I would say at the pointy end of, you know, particularly Grand Tours. Um, you know, Uran is very much, he's heading towards the exit door, isn't he? Chavez as well. And there is no real, I mean, of the 22 to 25-year-olds, probably the best one in the last couple of years has been someone like Santiago Butrago, who no one is talking about as a future superstar. I mean, what's, what's the word on the ground, Larry? Um, it's funny because actually we had this conversation, um, one of my friends and I, uh, maybe even like two, three days ago, and we were noticing how it is kind of funny that, you know, there are these trends in cycling for a while. It was like really popular to sign Americans. Uh, then that fizzled out. Then it was like Colombians, you know, now it's young guys. Uh, and then we were talking about maybe, you know, <clears throat> there's, I don't know, perhaps like when a group of guys grow up racing together um, and then they push each other. And so, you know, like you have all those guys from, you know, I don't know, a few years ago or whatever, if they all grew up, sort of racing each other through the ranks and they pushed each other higher to higher levels. And then like all of a sudden, you know, uh, you had like a bunch of amazing Colombian guys at the top and maybe that generation kind of fizzled out there. And, you know, maybe the current generation isn't as strong or pushing each other as far as like the generation before. And maybe now we see, you know, for example, Denmark, you know, it's like all the Danish guys coming up and stuff like that. So, you know, maybe, um, <clears throat> it's just sort of cyclical and like, uh, you know, the Colombian wave passed and maybe it'll come back in a few years. Um, but I don't know if also maybe something has to do with, um, you know, I think it's really hard. It's the same for Americans or Australians. It's like when you come like so far from home and especially like, I know Colombians, you know, they're really, really close to their families and stuff. And so like coming all the way over to Europe and like having to set up a base here 
trying to integrate into normal life is really difficult. And I know like in the past, you know, a lot of the Colombians, they'd be going home all the time. You know, it's like say maybe five, six times a year during the season. And I think the thing is also the level has just gotten so much higher in the last five years that, uh, you know, we don't really have the liberty to be going back and changing time zones so frequently. Otherwise it, you know, really, um, I guess I would say it inhibits your performance. Um, cause you know, it's like, when I started all the Americans, um, they didn't even get visas over here. They just like would pop in, do some races, pop out, go home. You know, they were really transient in Europe. And now, um, you see that almost every single American today is like established and, you know, doesn't go home that often, which is it's sad because it's, it's harder and, you know, we don't get to spend as much time at home, but I think it's kind of the nature of the sport today is like, uh, you know, the margins are just getting so much tighter, um, in terms of performance and, um so yeah i don't know maybe that could have had an impact on the colombians and uh yeah maybe why we're seeing less of them today do you think also in light of that that because because they were primarily known for being the best of the climbers in the in the peloton do you think there's something in the standards of climbing have improved as well so it's harder for them now to be successful yeah i mean that was something else i was thinking about is that potentially you know um now everything's so science and data driven and stuff that like um, perhaps like in Colombia, they're like, I don't know, a little more old school in terms of training. And, uh, you know, you get these guys now here in the juniors who have access to, you know, the craziest power meters, the, cra- the best trainers, whatever, you know, and like maybe it's sort of like an arms race in, in terms of data. And maybe like in Colombia, uh, you know, some guys who are less fortunate don't have the same financial means to invest in all that like high tech stuff like maybe um maybe in terms of training and physiology they're they're going to be a little bit behind uh, a european guy who has access to all the best equipment and trainers and everything so i don't know maybe that could have something to do with it and you know same with nutrition and all that kind of stuff so um yeah i think maybe now in terms of climbers like we're just a lot more dialed in terms of like you know nutrition you know i guess watts per kilo all this stuff so uh, whereas maybe, you know, five, 10 years ago, that wasn't really the case. Charles, we are drawing towards the conclusion of today's episode. Today's kind of whimsical. Jeremy, you used the word esoteric um, earlier. I'm not sure it's been an esoteric look at current state of matters, state of things in the uh, cycling media, on the cycling media landscape. But I thought it'd be interesting, given all of the sort of hand-wringing concern or hysterical media coverage at the moment about Twitter and talk of... Twitter's impending demise. I thought it'd be interesting to reflect on Twitter and what was quite a, an impactful force that has been on the cycling media, particularly in the last 10 years. Um, it's been around for more than 10 years, but if you look back, uh, particularly I remember Lance Armstrong's comeback in 2009, 2010. That was when I, I felt the whole conversation around professional cycling moved on to Twitter and he sort of sucked it into um, Twitter. And, and Larry, as far as riders are concerned, I mean, we've already talked about the, your relationship with social media, I feel that generally the sort of prevailing mood, the prevailing feeling of the peloton has has followed a similar parabola to my own, in the sense that I was probably quite a heavy user of of Twitter at one time, quite enjoyed a lot of the feedback, and a, a fatigue definitely kicked in at a certain point or started to take hold at a certain point or a, a sensitivity an oversensitivity hypersensitivity on my part and a, and a fear um that whatever i say about any subject is going to be in- interpreted 
um, uncharitably by someone and that makes me extremely sort of circumspect and unwilling to to express my opinions about things and use my platform in, in a way that perhaps I should and perhaps people would would expect from someone who is in the sport and talking to the protagonist but but I find it quite well, I suppose I'm quite sort of grizzled by it I'm quite kind of world weary of of Twitter now um, I mean do you say that's the case yeah. with you I guess the thing is the problem is, is like we're all kind of worried about saying the wrong thing and then getting in trouble. And so it's easier to just say nothing because then you're not going to get in trouble. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think that's a dangerous uh, loop to fall into because uh, then you, yeah, I guess you kind of lose your personality and your persona and it's important to have that. But I will say that I, I think in terms of Twitter, um, at least my usage has changed a lot. You know, it's like, I think people used to post a lot more like, you know, I don't know, just funny ideas or thoughts or whatever they had. And now everything's moving to Instagram for our generation, at least TikTok for maybe the generation after. What do you and mean by like, our uh, generation, Larry? What do you sorry? mean by our generation? Yeah. You mean? I mean, you fellow millennial on Instagram too, no? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I think I would the thing cross... is, is people just like, it's like picture books, you know, it's easier to consume than uh, reading long form articles. And it's like, Twitter, it's like you have to read, whereas like Instagram, you just kind of like slide through nice photos and whatever, you know, yeah. which is sad because, uh, it's uh, you know, maybe what is it, 280 characters now before 140 or whatever. Um, so, uh, you the know, thing, I think the, the thing, thing is, the, yeah. thing, the thing is with Twitter is we've all had the experience where we've posted something relatively innocently just as a kind of like conversation piece. And then you've been, you know, people attacked. rounded on you and abused you and attacked you and you think, oh, God, yeah. it's like your phones, you know giving you electric shocks, isn't it? It's like, I'm never going near this again. And we've all had, everybody who's used it has now had that experience. And yeah. especially if you've got any kind of moderate profile, you know, as a as a media person or as, a, or as an athlete, you know, it's like, it, as you say, it's so hard to know how's this going to go down? Maybe I shouldn't do it. And as soon as you lose that spontaneity, it's kind of renders 100%. it meaningless, really. You know? I've had some interesting conversations with people recently as well about people are, I think more and more they recognize the the kind of knife the the razor's edge of the the kind of dopamine rush that comes with even positive feedback that um it, it keeps a it keeps you hooked and almost I think we've learned that that there is a precipice on the other side um and there's almost a uh, well, it's a very predictable ratio of however much positive feedback will always come with, you know, the 1% or 2% or 5% or 10% of negative feedback, which completely then obliterates yeah, yeah, yeah. all of the positive feedback. Yeah, and as a, one, as, a, uh, as, as a serious point, I'd say actually that it can have a really ne a detrimental impact on people's mental health if they spend mm. too much time on it, you know, and it can make people feel uh kind of paranoid and devalued and kind of you know misunderstood and those are those are you know the world's complicated enough now anyway you don't need that coming out of your phone do you you don't really need yeah the one the one that I, i'll never forget is like in the giro in 2020 this day that uh you know the riders sort of protested and uh you know because like they had lengthened the stage to like 260 something k in the pouring rain after like back to back to back seven hour days and we were all just exhausted. And anyway, you know, we ended up climbing on the buses, cutting the stage in half and, uh, you know, going, starting down the road somewhere. And I remember all these people freaking out on Twitter, you know, like going off. And, and one of the guys who 
was probably one of the people that I enjoyed following the most um, in cycling. Uh, he, you know, said some scathing thing about all of us or whatever, you know? And I think I replied, I mean, I was probably more exhausted that day than I've ever been any day in my life, you know? But I think I just, you know, I think I tweeted something like, you know, well, like imagine being in our shoes and like, and then this guy just went off on me on how, you know, we have this privilege and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, whatever, like this is what, you know, there's so many other people that rather be in our place. Anyway, he just totally like roasted me and that actually really hurt me, you know? And, uh, and so that, that I definitely think that put a really bad taste in my mouth. Uh, and, and Twitter was a lot less enjoyable after that. Uh, so, so yeah, I don't know. It happens, I guess. Well, chaps, let's hope it craters and yeah. implodes into nothing. Oh, I still like Twitter. I get a lot um, of in good the coming weeks over the festive there. period. Um, well, chaps, as I we're, said, we're this all has been still far there, aren't we? We're all still there. We are, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. um, this has been a far from comprehensive, as say, aerial view of everything that's been going on in cycling media over the last twelve months. But I thought it'd be it'd be interesting, particularly in light of recent events, and uh, it was very useful to look back on some of the big stories of the twenty twenty two season. Twenty twenty three is probably going to be an exciting year for the cycling media. We've got the the Netflix, the much trumpeted Netflix documentary series about last year's Tour de France coming out before next year's Tour de France I believe we've got another Movistar series El Dia Menos Pensado more I suppose more of the exciting um, things or the, 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 the things that are going to get people talking they do seem to be happening on screens rather than on print that's a sign of the times I think um, Discovery and Warner Brothers and Eurosport exerting ever more influence but you know we'll see those trends continue in 2023 I'm sure Jeremy thank you for your insight and company today and um, I'm going to wish you a very Merry Christmas thank you for having me and the same to you thank you Jeremy and Larry we'll be catching up with you at some point over the winter after your performance review hope it goes yeah. well yeah. yes good, good luck with report that report back on that thanks guys <laughs> The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb and Lionel Burney.